Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine. My guest today is Don Stevenson of Moby Grape. Last time we had Don on the podcast, we talked about the early days of the group and went through their first immaculate album, track by track. Don enjoyed the conversation so much, he suggested we do it again, this time covering their third album, Moby Grape 69, so that's what we did. Everything was golden when Moby Grape made their first album in 1967. They were at the peak of their powers and everything was going right for them. But by the second half of 1968, events had taken a dark turn and the band was in disarray. Skip Spence had suffered a mental breakdown and was confined indefinitely to Bellevue Hospital. An imposter version of Moby Grape, backed by their despicable ex-manager Matthew Cates, was touring the country, sowing bad vibes and confusion. And Cates was suing the real Moby Grape for a million dollars, claiming that he owned the sole rights to their name. In the midst of all this internal and external turmoil, in late 1968, the four members of the real Moby Grape still standing, Jerry Miller, Bob Mosley, Peter Lewis, and our man Don Stevenson, somehow managed to record a magnificent, cohesive, beautifully composed album, Moby Grape 69. In this episode, we'll take a close look at how that came to pass and get some insight into each of the album's tracks. Also part of the conversation was Cam Cobb, author of the Moby Grape biography, What's Big and Purple and Lives in the Ocean, and an upcoming book about Skip Spence. Let's get started. Cam, maybe you can kind of help us set the scene. Um, sure. 1968, you could say, was a pretty messed up year for Moby Grape. Things are starting to fall apart pretty badly. But maybe you could sort of summarize that, uh, what went down during the sessions for WOW, the second album, and what followed after that. Sure. Okay. So um, on December 30th, 1967, that was the last day that Moby Grape's first album was on the Billboard chart, and it was at number 128, and then it dropped off the chart. And in early January, from the 11th to the 12th, Moby Grape, three members of Moby Grape, uh, faced their trial that um, was lingering from the previous June, which was June of 1967, and they were acquitted, but they had that two-day trial for Peter, Skip, and Jerry. And after they had the trial, um, the band was touring a little bit and then playing, um, doing recording sessions in New York city for wow. And this was the last go for wow. They started it in August of 67, returned to it in June of 67. And then they had about a month of sessions from mid January to mid February that wrapped on February 13th when they recorded a song called the lake. And the lyric is, um, from a contest winner that was put on to promote album sales by Columbia. And so that wrapped on February 13th. A month later, uh, the fake grape makes its first appearance up in Seattle, that where Matthew Cates, the band's ex-manager, is. And um, Skip was the person who spoke out initially um, responding to this. And it, uh, that first appeared in the San Francisco Examiner on March 21st of 1968. So just as WoW is getting mixed, this erupts and so there's a fake grape now and they're touring around performing they come down the west coast and they perform in 
real Moby Grape territory. And so on April 3rd, Moby Grape plays at the Winterland and WoW gets released. And it takes a while to appear in the chart. Meanwhile, Moby Grape goes back into the studio. Bob demos uh, It's a Beautiful Day Today on April 22nd. So it's basically three weeks after the album was released. And then on April 24th, they finalize a version of Skip's song, Seeing, which was originally demoed for the WOW album. And then on April 30th, the song that Jerry and Skip wrote together called Cockatoo Blues is uh, recorded with Bob taking on the lead vocals. And that song would later be retitled Tongue Tied and recorded for their fourth album, Truly Fine Citizen. So you've already had a lot of things happening. Um Wow goes in the charts uh, after about a month, and it it starts moving up in the charts. As that's happening, Moby Grape goes on a hectic tour in May. They go to they start in California, they go to New York City, back to California, they go to Cleveland, they go down to Texas, and they go back to New York City. When they're back in New York City, they've got some some gigs to play, gigs for New York City and also Long Island and in Philly. And during this time, Skip connects with. Uh, kind of groupy, and he moves in with her. So he leaves um, the band members in the Albert Hotel. Everybody except for Peter was staying at the Albert Hotel. And Skip goes to live with this woman in Greenwich Village and stops showing up at gigs and stops showing up at rehearsals. And they're trying to record at the same time, too. And Skip had a breakdown at this time when he appeared at the Albert Hotel and took an axe, that fire axe, and he hacked up Don's door, looking for Don, and made his way to the studio. And so he got put in the tombs, and then after that he got put in Bellevue. And the idea, the hope was at the time, that Skip would get cleaned out. Um, people didn't know if he was what he was taking. Uh, it could have been bad LSD. There are different possibilities. But he ended up staying in Bellevue for a very long time, much longer than was anticipated. And during that time, Moby Grape went on a little brief hiatus for most of June. And Moby Grape reappeared as a four-man band on June 29th at a festival in Central Park. And that was a pretty big gig. And they did that. And they did some touring in the summer. They actually toured up and down the West Coast. And they toured up in Canada, played in Vancouver, played in Toronto. Um, like Moby Grape's history, they had some mishaps with lost luggage. And uh, one time the road manager got separated from the band when they were traveling. And so they had this happen in September. They had a little bit of R&R and uh, they had a handful of shows, but a little bit of R&R. And then in October, they had a East Coast tour where they're hitting Philly a couple times in New York and Boston. And um, they demoed a new song and they're getting ready to go back into the studio in November. And so they're going to return to the third album that they had shelved uh, after Skip had his breakdown. And so just as that was about to happen, Skip's about to get out of Bellevue. And Matthew Cates has a fantastic surprise for the band. He not only has this fake grape, but now he's suing the band for a million dollars, claiming that he owns the name Moby Grape. And this news breaks in early November right before Moby Grape goes into the studio. WOW drops off the charts on November 9th. That was its last week on Billboard at number 143. And on November 11th, the band steps right back into the studio and they have nine studio days booked. And in those nine days, they're going to make a new album, which ends up turning into Moby Grape 69. 
Don, let, let's circle back over some of that material and have your comments because um, Skip's exit from the band. I mean, this is part of the Moby Grape legend and him coming after you with an axe at the Albert Hotel. Can you walk us through that? Um, leading up to it, you know, uh, we were there was a little bit of, I don't know what was going on, but, uh, you know, Mosley was like cracking up a little bit. Um, he would sabotage some of our gigs by playing in the wrong key, you know, which was this uh, <laughs> uh, way of saying, hey, I'm here, you know, and then like uh, Cam was saying, Skip would either come or he wouldn't come or he'd be there or he wouldn't be there. We didn't know exactly what was going on. And it turned out that he was, he met this group, her name was Joanna, and uh, he was staying with her down in uh, in the village. And at one point, um, I went down actually to go see Skip in the village where he was with Joanna because he wasn't at rehearsals. So I went down to see if he was okay, you know, what was going on. So I went yeah. down into Greenwich village to see him. And they had a kind of one of those basement walk down apartments where Joanna lived. And so I went in and it was a pretty weird vibe. You know, um, like I said, I think they were both taking psychedelics. Um, Skip wanted to start a new band. He wanted me to, he didn't want me to play drums anymore. He wanted me to sing. And so I think he wanted Mosley in it too. And that, you know, so he was telling me how he wanted to start a new band. He wanted to call it the cows. Um, and uh, that he was, uh, it was time to maybe move on from, from the grape. Uh, so I thought, oh, okay. Then then I also had to take into consideration that they had a, what uh, Skip called an oracle and what Joanne was calling an oracle. And Joanne seemed to be kind of like leading them on a little bit about some of these things, you know, hey, Skip, tell them about the new band. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so there's this guy laying on the on the couch in this uh, probably one room, walked down, pulled flat. There's a guy who laying on the couch there. He's an old guy. Like, you know, he's like, he's old. <laughs> he's just laying there. <laughs> so this is, you know, he, this is our oracle. This is like... I forget what his name was. It was like it was Makamu or some kind of like weird name, you know, they'd given him. And uh, said that uh, when we look for the truth, we talk to the Oracle. And uh, so I just said, well, hey, man, we miss you a lot, you know, and uh, and love you, buddy. And come on, you know, we need to, we really need you. You're an integral part of what we do. You're, you know, we, we love you and love what you do. And so, so, so that was kind of like my visitation with Skip. When he came to the Albert Hotel, Jerry and I were, this was just days afterwards, um, Jerry and I were up at, at the recording studio. And uh, Jerry and I were staying in the Albert in the same room. We were, we were part buddies, right? So it was kind of like the shining, like, here's Johnny. You know, <laughs> just kind of, here's Skippy, you know. <laughs> so he, he just got a hold of some bad stuff, man, between maybe uh, – psychedelics or mushrooms or acid or heroin or I don't he was doing a lot of speed whatever was going on um while Jerry and I were up at the studio he came back to the Albert Hotel and it just asking around where's what room is Don in and Skippy or Jerry what, what's their room so I think I forget who told him maybe it was Tim 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 Delera yeah Delera the road manager he told him so Skippy didn't have an axe at that point he took one off the wall in, in case of emergency break this so there was some kind of emergency in skippy's eyes and so he broke that grabbed that fire axe 
started chopping into the door and uh, people noticed that he was like really kind of strange and out of control. And Joanne was with him at the time, you know, telling him, come on, skip, we, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, and so uh, the police came and, and, uh, or no, no, the police didn't come. He left when he found out that we weren't there and headed back up to the studio, you know, and, and uh, find us. And so when he went back up to the studio, if fortune would have it, Jerry and I just left the studio and went back to the Albert Hotel. So Skippy must have been shocked that we weren't at the studio, but you can't imagine how shocked I was when I saw a hole in our door um, where Skippy had come to greet us and to meet us all come down to say hi. Um, So that was a pretty uh, harrowing incident. And at that point, uh, David Rubinson, who was the adult in the room, most times, you know, he was very playful and very funny and very very talented as a producer and but he was also grown up and uh he he talked to skip and i believe that at that point um did rubinson call the police or did he go to cato's grouper was there and rubinson was there it was cato there uh no that was beforehand yeah and they kind of talked him down and skip got picked up and you guys got moved to a different hotel right skip got picked up and then uh, we got, then David said, hey, you guys, before before he got picked up, David said, you guys need to move. You can't really stay at the Albert Hotel. So I think we moved to the Taft. And uh, and I called my, this, I love this, I called my, my wife, Paula. Um, her grandmother was a First Nations woman. And uh, they they lived up in uh, Mill Valley. With the, They had a kind of a vineyard there and a little farm and her and Clinton, Clinton, her husband. And uh, she was kind of like, looked like one of those Apple people. You know, she's just all kind of scrunched <laughs> up and cool. And she gave me a necklace to wear. She said this was a truth necklace you can wear when it will protect you from from uh, from harm. It was funny, every time I did something out of the, you know, when I when the light was red and I went through it anyway, a little piece of that necklace would fall off. <laughs> it was a bracelet eventually. But... She gave me that necklace, and then and then she and I told her. I said, "What happened?" I said, "You know, one of the guys in the band, Granny, that they, they went absolutely um, off the deep end, you know. And he's, I think he's like he's crazed, and he came down and tried to chop a hole in our door and tried to kill me. And I said, uh, I I don't know if wherever he is or what, however he is, I don't know if he has some kind of like, you know, in, he's a weird, powerful, strange thing going on there. And I said, I don't know what to do. I'm scared about it. I'm really concerned and scared." She said, I want you to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I said, what? She said, I want you to plead the blood of Jesus. And I thought, well, Granny, that's just as strange as what everything else is going on. <laughs> she, but I got down on my knees and I pleaded the blood of Jesus. And uh, and I do believe that, uh, that that was a protective coating that has uh, stayed with me ever since. You know, so right. that was that was kind of the incident of Skip and uh, Albert Hotel. So when Skip basically gets put away in Bellevue, at that point, did you think that he would be coming back to the band? Or at that point, were you were going to go on as four? I mean, what point did you realize that Skip wasn't going to be a part of Moby Grape anymore? Well, I don't know what anybody else thought, but, you know, I'm, I come just so Jerry and I just came from rhythm and blues clubs and, you know, put your head down and go straight forward, play four hours a night, you know, play six nights a week. I just wanted to play. So I I missed Skip and knew that he was a big part of our band, but I just kind of like I my nature is to like okay here's where we are here's what we need to do let's put it together and 
do what we can and play the best we possibly can. We're still Moby Grape and we're still songwriters and singers and recording artists and like, let's do what we can do. So right. I didn't, didn't really, you know, I, I didn't know. I knew that Skippy was in, in the tombs. He was in Bellevue, um, but there was no notion of him coming back anytime soon. So we either quit or we move forward. So right. we move forward. Right. So it was almost like a fresh start, but really just a continuation as well. Yeah, definitely. So where where were you living at the time that you started work on recording Moby Grape 69? We were living in Malibu. Right. All four of us were living in the same house in Malibu. Um, so we were down there for a month or so. The Columbia Records put us down in Al Malibu. And so Bob was teaching us how to surf. You know, which is really kind of funny because Bob is like, he's a surfer god. You know, he's he's a first team baseball player, all athlete, all everything, you know, thump and grump. God, he's like a godlike figure and he's out there surfing like a madman. He's trying to teach us we're all falling off the boards and getting sand in places where you never imagined sand could possibly be. So <laughs> there was kind of, and we also, uh, I think that was, was that the time we were recording for a movie? No, we had already recorded. done that. We had already recorded for the movie. And uh, Tony Franciosa, who was like the star of Sweet Ride, um, had a plate down on Malibu. So we went over there and partied with Tony Franciosa and, you know, Bichette and it's like, you know, some of the birds. And, you know, so there was some kind of parties going on. But we were so fractured at the time that uh, there was moments like that that were fun and that were like really Great to be able to be, you know, living together in Malibu in this like idealistic, where if I had all the money in the world, that's where I'd probably love to be. You know, it's a great place. But things were things were really difficult, and we weren't getting along very well. As a matter of fact, I think Bob was really angry, and Peter was indifferent, and Jerry and I were fed up, and we didn't like talking to each other, and we weren't really crazy. We're all confined to the same space. So we would even have days where we'd say, okay, we're going to have a word fast. Nobody can talk to anybody. We just don't talk. But the thing that's really interesting is in the midst of all of that, um, our ability to write songs, it, it penetrated all that stuff. So when somebody would bring a song in, when somebody would bring in, you know, some, you know, Bob would uh, bring in Hoochie, you know, and he would start doing that, start playing. All of a sudden, man, all the other things fell aside. They all just were not a problem any longer because the music itself was was uh, something that connected us. And that's what really connected us and connected us with the people that loved our music. And and we knew that that was a big that was, you kind of give into that and you get it back. So we would overcome any kind of difficulties that we had, because when we were starting to learn each other's music, then it was absolutely cooperation and, and listening to each other and trying to, that was the spirit that, uh, that gave the, the hippies, whatever good name they had. That's what gave us that good name was that ability to listen instead of talk. Cause we didn't do really well when we were talking, but when we were listening, we did really well and we tried to benefit each other's music and try to add to it and make it the best we possibly could. And ultimately, I think that uh, Moby Grape 69 is maybe my second favorite album. It's Yeah, it's remarkable, really, when you say talk about all the frustration and anger and 
and uh, Discord in the band that the album sounds very cohesive and, and warm and friendly and like healing kind of an album after the chaos that had come before. But behind the scenes, I guess that wasn't completely the case. Not completely, but when it was with music, you know, and uh, so it reflected the honesty of the music, you know, which was where we did love each other. That's where we met each other. That's a good way to put it. So let's go through the album track by track and give us okay. some thoughts. Um, the first song on the album is uh, Ooh Mama Ooh. You look good enough to You and uh, Jerry wrote that, and and I was when I was listening to the album the other day, I was sort of thinking, yeah, you know, the album kicks off with this, you know, shuffle, a, a good fun rock, the same way the first album kicks off with Hey Grandma. So for a Moby Grape fan, immediately they, it triggers like, yeah, we're going in the right direction because this is making me think of the first album. I'm getting the same feeling. Um, what's, what are your thoughts on that song? Well, this was during. Uh that time when was Cam was talking about that. When, what was that tour like that we took where we went from pillar to post? Yeah, you started in California in May. Then you went to New York City. You went to back to California, to Cleveland, to Texas, and then back up to New York City. This is Texas. We're in Texas. We're feeling <laughs> abused. Jerry and I are really feeling abused. And we're missing our wives. We're missing our families. And we think that these people who are putting this tour together are total morons and we just feel like we should just stay in texas you know we we went out saw albert king and albert collins went to these nightclubs and listened to these great blues bands and everything so when we wrote umama ooh it was like you know had me a taste of the big time let these fools push me around got to where every night i was uptight and rocking was bringing me down but now i'm coming home coming home to you and getting up next to baby is like rocking all night long so we had this doo-wop thing going like i said mama mama you know and, yeah. and it was kind of like a nice fill and it just felt like fun and when we got into the studio we didn't know it but david rubinson was a doo-wop singer he was uh, in a doo-wop band one of these you know and he was the bass he was the we down there right he was the bass. Yeah. and so david with good humor at the end of it, you listen to it, it cracks you up. You're going, you know, I said it, it turns from a shuffle into kind of a half beat, what we would call a slop. And so when, yeah. you know, so now, you know, and so David's putting all this stuff and it's just cracking us up. But uh, yeah, Jerry and I were down in Texas. We also wrote Big at that time, which yeah. is... Uh, I love that song. Um, and so that's another protest song that came out of Texas, you know. So that was a uh, couple of songs that we wrote down there, you know, that we were just disgusted by the way we were being abused and treated and misused, you know. <laughs> and and so that was a, a reflection of that. So we wrote that at that point, and then it, it was a perfect un- entry into uh, Moby Grape 69.
Let's move on to the next song, which is uh, Ain't That a Shame. Now, this is one that you and Don and Peter all get a songwriting credit on. It definitely has kind of a country flavor, like many of the songs on this album have some nice country flavor. And um, yeah, so it's a really nice song. I love the line about it feeling so depleted. I mean, that's such a great word. Yes. <laughs> I had to steal everything I needed. Well, I, I, think, that, I think that Jerry wrote that song because I, I, you know, but it's, it's maybe my favorite song on the album. It's so, you know, sometimes simplicity is like the very best when less is more. And that song has got, it's got, if you really ch- check the chords, it's got really interesting chord changes. At the end of the first verse, you would think that where he goes, ain't that a shame is going to go, ain't that a shame, ain't that a shame, ain't that a shame. But it doesn't. It goes, ain't that a shame the way I've been treated. So it just kind of, moves smoothly into this thing and then all of a sudden I get I get to sing harmonies with him on the rest of that. Um yeah. it's a great song, great country song. And I actually had a couple of like Ringo fills in that. I don't usually do Ringo fills, but I had a total Ringo fill and I look at it now and I go, I should have done more Ringo fills. You're very melodic. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a fun song to play and I've learned how to play it. I you know I love the song. You know, I like singing it, yeah. I like playing it. I think it's a really, really cool song. Jerry's that's, voice is that's Jerry singing lead, right? On that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's great. And I love that the the instrumental bridge with it. It kind of becomes very acoustic just for a little bit. That's just really nice. It just takes the song somewhere else. It really does because everything stops and it's just that build up with yeah. the acoustic guitar, and it doesn't. It it's just like a. It's really interesting. It's kind of a. It would be out of place except it fits. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like a simple song and then it just adds this little twist. It's just right. great. Yeah. I love it. And right at the end of that, that part is where I do my Ringo fill if you want to go back and listen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never doubting. Then the next song on the album is a beautiful song by Peter. I I am not willing. I mean, what a vocal on that song! Holy shit, so beautiful. So I think that was recorded. Was that recorded for a while? Um, no, that was uh, "What's to Choose." Oh, "What's to Choose." That's another beautiful song, Peter. I am not willing. I I don't know what to say except that Peter is on probably four days out of the week as my favorite songwriter. Yeah. It's just beautiful. He writes beautiful songs. And uh, uh, it's just a beautiful song. I love playing it. Love uh, singing a little bit of harmony on it. Um, the message is poignant. Mm. I don't know what to say other than I just love Peter and love the way he writes music. I didn't like the way he communicated at the time, but I love the way he communicated musically. Just right. am- amazing. Yeah, that is such a beautiful song. And then um, a really sort of untypical song of uh, Mosley's, It's a Beautiful Day Today. I mean, this is very mellow, very optimistic, um, not usually the characteristics you associate with 
with Mosley songs, which are usually full of angst or soul or, you know, not this sort of happy, uh, optimistic kind of approach. I love it. Yeah, it came from another time, right? I think that was like when we were recording Wow that he did that, that uh, that he recorded that. So I would say during this whole session, if I had to kind of like say anything about Mosley's disposition, it would be angry, you know. Um, but back then, I guess he was happy. It must have been a happy day because I hated that song personally <laughs> really? because I don't. I guess hate's a strong word. I just went, I was perplexed because I'm not a folky guy. I don't like, you know, I didn't much care for folk music. And it was so folky. And it was my buddy, Bob, who's like just this powerhouse going, I'm done, done. Go, oh, come on, Bob, what's going on here, man? And as I've <laughs> aged, you know, obviously as I've grown a little more sophisticated, I guess, I love the song and the, the way that it, this speaks of like, you know, just a, what a great, what a great notion to hear people say that it's a beautiful day today. So it's, it's a great song. But at yeah. the time, like I said, I was maybe hate isn't the right word. You can cut that. I was perplexed and I right. didn't quite understand where that was coming from or what my, wh who's got, who's got Bob. Yeah, I mean, yeah. First listen, you you could say it's it's could be perceived as being a little insipid. Yeah, that's. But it's not. But, it, but if you if you sort of open your heart to it, it's it's very sincere. I think, and it's it is happiness. Mike, you have just pinpointed it on the nose. I thought it was insipid at the time, and as time <laughs> rolls along, I've opened my heart, and I realize that it's really meaningful, and uh, I'm glad he did it. And I'm glad I got to sing a little circle part at the end. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. So then by way of contrast, the next song is Hoochie, which is Mosley at his most sort of, you know, like a Viking hero, you know, um, the bass, the vocals, it's just powerhouse. You know, that's there's an example of um, how we contributed to one another, and how that you know how that magic can happen when you got guys like a stature that I think musically in in the realm that we're in, where we have like chops, right? So when Mosley brought the song in, it was like it will be so it's just kind of a nice little shuffle, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you listen to what Jerry added to it, it like tears ass into the stratosphere. He puts this, you know, and you just go, oh, my God. And then Jerry puts this comp on it 
which is on the eighth note. It's like, and then Bob starts pounding that bass like a master. And then I fell right in the pocket. This is like, this is my sweet spot. And we just pushed that thing into into this massive sonic boom, right? And then in the breaks, mostly would slow down. Just da 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 da. And then when it started up, there was no introduction or no way to get back into it other than, you know. And I just yeah. I love that, you know. So it was like such an uncomfortable song, but it's such a powerful, powerful thing. And Mosley's just talking about this, we'll meet in heaven, you know. And uh, and all, all that just great stuff, and these I'll look into your eyes and touch your soul, man. It was just like the awesome. And then the thing that was most amazing is, other than one note samba, I don't know of very many songs that are only one chord. It's only one chord. That whole song. So That's all it needs. You play three and a half minutes of one chord and make it interesting. Just turn Mosley loose. <laughs> well, all of you guys, you know, you just. Yeah. Yeah, it's the it's all in the performance. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Um, so then we're flipping the album over, I believe, at this point, and it's uh, another Mosley song, "Trucking Man." What's your memories of this song? Mosley was just like um, came in and had that song. It was already done. There wasn't anything to do other than just like it was like playing our favorite old rock and roll song. You know what I mean? It's like it was just like playing our favorite rock song, Jerry Lee Lewis or Little Richard or Chuck Berry or any any great rock and roll song. And Mosley had just had this epiphany about how that uh, truck drivers were, how important they were, and what they meant to um, our you know to our economy and to people on the road and all of that. And he just had this thing nailed and he came in and started. And all we did was we just we played it once and we all, that was all we needed to do. It was just done. It was done the minute we heard it, it was finished. And then he played piano on it. If you listen to the piano, it sounds like the most amazing piano player, like Chuck Berry's piano player or something. But he's like just a, he's just like full of little tricks because he played the piano in like, like, a, a key that was like a couple of octaves lower than the actual track, and so and yep. then then he sped it up so that you know it's just like no do that you know. But it's, so I even saw some comments on once when I was looking at some of the comments on Umamau. The guy goes, "Who's playing piano, man? That's like amazing." So that was David with a little bit of skullduggery, you know. I, th- I think John Fogarty must have heard that song, and you know, it's it's like it's, it sounds like about ten different Creedence songs that came afterwards. You know what I mean? Exactly. And then another one of Peter's um, 
beautiful songs uh, if you can't learn from your mistakes. It's just a real country song. Right. And that's what beautiful. Peter... I don't have a lot to say about what Peter wrote, other than I just am privileged to have played on it and to be a part of it and to sing harmonies with it. And when he brought it into the when he brought it into the room, again there was a you know one level upon another level upon another level where we put harmonies and all that. But he comes in, he's such a wonderful little his, his finger picking is so precise. Um, I think I mentioned the last time that Peter was uh, in in some ways I think Peter because of his background and because of where he came from and from the. Uh, you know, from the world that he came from, that he always needed to prove himself more than everybody else, because he didn't. It, 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 it this music is is a meritocracy. It's not you don't get in there because your mom was Loretta Young. You get in there because you can pick, and yeah. that's what Peter. When Peter came in and brought a song, and his finger picking was was intricate and and uh, well thought out and well played. So you could just be inspired by what he did. And so he would start to sing the song and we would add harmonies and parts. And he's a great songwriter. Great songwriter. Yeah. And his songs always seem to be about his feelings, romantic feelings, usually. He, he's kind yeah. of like the love song guy of the band, for sure. He is a, he's romantic. Yeah. And and I love the way, you know, Peter's guitar playing is beautiful. And then Jerry finds a way to sort of just weave in with him, which is just Fabulous. Yeah, they worked really well together. Yeah, for sure. The next song on the album is one of my favorites, um, and it's one of yours and Jerry's, Captain Nemo. Um, short song, but it's so well done it, and uh you know what's it about i mean captain nemo he's from like the jules van twenty thousand leagues under the sea right he's the submarine that's right so what's going on in this song um it's jerry and i we i think we started this one also when we were down in texas and um it has to do with not necessarily just you know our band but part of it has to do with our band for sure you know, but it's like there's so many people that can present themselves in a certain way. But, you know, it's there's a difference between how you present yourself and what you do. It's like a good question. Are you what you say or are you what you do? You know, and we were thinking that is pretty much what you do, not what you say. So we were kind of writing a song just about hypocrisy. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly why we called it Captain Nemo other than, you know, it was pretty well under the sea we didn't want anybody to know what we were writing about other than we were just you know take it for whatever you want it to be but i did i love the song and i love singing it man it was a great it had uh you know it had the, the keyboard part in it which i think was on a harpsichord which uh is a real interesting sound you know yeah. who was playing that david david yeah yeah it's it's great it's it's such a cool song that 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 sounds like it could have been a single you know it could have been a hit it kind of got buried in the shuffle in a way yeah, but I I, it, I I liked it a lot and I think it's like less than two minutes long it's it's just again less yeah. is more yes what do you
And then right away, another Peter Lewis song, uh, What's to Choose. What's to get? This one's really kind of got this dreamy, romantic feel, you know? Yeah, he's like really, uh, that song is like just, it's beautiful. And it's like he's he's really dedicated to, to this woman or to, you know, to this ideal, whatever it is. Because uh, he's asking some interesting questions, you know, and he's, he's unrequited love, you know. Peter's singing about unrequited love. And again, man, it's, and, and it's just, it was really a, a very uh, intricate, you better, you better be careful when you're playing this song with Pete because you don't want to step on it, you know? So yeah. it was a, it's a beautiful song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could see how all of Peter's songs could just work as a, as a solo piece with just him and a guitar. Exactly. So you have to be, you know, like I think actually on, um, which one is it? If you can't learn from my Yeah, mistakes. if you can't learn from my mistakes, I think we actually played too much. That's just my opinion, you know, because we went, I went double time during the hook and then went back to, you know, halftime during the song. Um, if I, you know, if I could do it now, I would do it completely differently, but it was, it's okay. That's who we were. And it turned out just fine. Don't get me wrong, but oh, yeah. you, you have to be able to be careful with Peter songs because they are intricate um, and you don't want to step on them. You want to just like let them breathe. Yeah. Here's another great song, Going Nowhere, one of yours and Jerry's. And again, it sounds like you're singing about the frustration you were feeling in the band at the time, you know, with the fake grape and, and you know, trying to hold on to your name, trying to hold on to what you had. I think you pretty well nailed it. That's, uh, there was a lot going on everywhere. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we went from JFK to Lyndon Johnson, a Vietnam War civil you know, the civil rights movement was, was going on. Uh, there was a expression of freedom that uh, separated the whole country between young people and old people. Don't trust anybody over 30. Don't trust anybody under 30. You know, Matthew was suing us. We were all having big problems. Skippy was in, you know, was in Bellevue. Uh, you know, there was like Matthew was putting together a fake band that was touring all over the place. It was pretty nihilistic. You know, and politicians were lying through their teeth, you know, so it was a pretty nihilistic song. It covered not only our dynamic in our band, which was a microcosm of everything else in a way, um, but it also was a, it was actually thought out about just how, you know, um, how difficult, how that things just didn't seem like there was any way to resolve this stuff. You know, so like I said, if you listen to it, it's a pretty nihilistic song. Right. Yeah. You say you, you can take everything and throw it away, you know, like right. it's, you know, cause it's going nowhere. You, it's like, it's yeah. almost like, yeah, you, it's a defeatist song, but it yeah. sort of has a strength to it too. It's kind of, you're singing it with a, an uplifting kind of a feel. Yeah. Yeah. It has a, it's a question answer song too. I want to know where you're going. Yeah. I want to know where I'm going. You ain't going nowhere, you know, slip inside my world. What do you think I care? You know? So it's like, 
you know, it's it's a question answer song, yeah. and uh, it's not completely you know without without uh, silver lining, but uh, it was pretty dark. Yeah, yeah, great song. Um, the, the the last song on the album. I mean, there's a lot to unpack with that one because it's a monster, monster song, and it's Skip's last song for Moby Grape. You know, if the original run of the band at least seeing. What an amazing song. Yeah. Was that always going to be on the album uh, or when Skip departed, was there some talk of like not having any of his songs on there or did that just have to be a part of it? That just had to be a part of it. Skippy was always with us, even though he wasn't with us, you know, so yeah, that just had to be a part of the album. It's funny, there was a number of incarnations of that song. When we played two years ago, we played up here at dinner night at uh, Hughes' room of uh, Moby Grape, and Skip's son came, you know, Omar came and played with us. And I had uh, this band, local guys, called Cadre, which are just wonderful players. So we did a whole night of all Moby Grape songs, and Skip's son sang scene. And even even with his son singing, he put the hair up on the on my arms, you know, because yeah. it's just a magnificent composition, you know, and there was, there was a number of different uh, recordings. The first one we ever did for a demo was too scary to put on a record. I can Seriously. believe that. Yeah, it is an intense song, even in its final form. this form was like it wasn't it's not watered down because it is you know the first one Skippy sang all the lead not Mosley and yeah. and I think that it came out later as Cam told me as a um, as a bonus track on something the scary one but it is scary this is like um, the composition is really really interesting Skippy's like singing to lost souls you know he's uh, he's like a spiritual uh, master singing to the, to the lost. And uh, the, the way that the instrumentals came together, I don't know how that happened. I mean, it was just boom, boom, you know, and at the end, there's just like, it's like a, like a Jewish, um, if you listen to it, it's kind of like, it, it has this, uh, this Jewish effect. It goes, you know, let's see, it goes, bum, 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 and it's just this like whole tapestry that was put together and it couldn't have come out any other way i mean skip has little you know if, if you look at his his talent 
was to be in the midst of everything and three guitars and know exactly what to play in the midst of everything without stepping on anybody or doing it. And it's like this little, he's like a mystical guitar player. You know, Jerry's like a lead guitar player and Peter's like a finger picker and Skippy is like a moving thing that can just move in and move out at the right time. And it inspired these other guitar parts that are just brilliant. And then the words are just, just like, you know, it's, it's a very, it's dark, um, but you know, it's necessary. So it's a great song. Great song. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he, you know, he went to the edge and looked over the edge, you know, and saw everything and then he couldn't come back, you know, he'd seen it. Couldn't compromise. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So my God, it's yeah. And save me, you know, and he's just, Sing and save me. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. If I save you, can I spend you? Wow. Yeah. That's a heavy, heavy song. Um, and very, yeah, a different song to end the album. It could only go at the end. Yeah. The album. Yeah. It's a perfect, perfect song for the end. Did Skippy ever talk about that song to you, like later? Like, uh... no. No, there's, you know, the song itself was the songs we wrote and sang were the conversation in, in themselves. Yeah. Right. You didn't go back and rake no. over the ashes. No. You can do that at you can do that at Cornell. You know, I'm sure there could be a course on you know, on singing or some of those songs. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, we're going over it here, you know, yeah, exactly. you know, because the fans want to know as much, you know, we want to get inside those songs because you made something magical with them. So yeah. uh, we want to kind of understand what it was. Right. Let's talk about the album cover. I mean, that is on the beach in Malibu, right? Yeah. That's up to this big rock on Malibu. So like I said, those, there were some fun times, you know, bouncing around the surf and, you know, going out there and having Mosley show us how to surf. That was just cracked me up. I got a picture of me with the surfboard. I think it's in, on the inside in a while with a surfboard and a big crack in my butt. <laughs> you know. yeah, yeah. I, had, I look like a surfer, but man, I wasn't. So, yeah, we just uh, thought that that rock was like was at the end of the beach and it was just uh, a pretty cool place to be able to uh, to take a photo shoot, you know, to take a photo it's so, a great shot. Yeah, you guys all look cool. It's, you know, iconic. It's really, really cool. Yeah. And then the liner notes on the back, I don't know. It, they seem to be like sort of undermining what's inside in a way. It's almost, they sound almost apologetic. Yeah, it's, that's, I know, they do. And we didn't have anything to, we didn't have any um, say in what, you know, what Columbia had put on the liner notes. But yeah, it was like, it was an apology. Uh, you yeah. know, it's like going in, like whimpering, you know, when, when the album itself was, there's nothing to apologize about that album. No, no. Yeah. It should have been. It's a proud statement that you're still standing after all this yeah. bullshit, but yeah. It's, yeah. yeah it, it sets the wrong tone. Yeah. And we actually had some, we had some really good concerts. We had mixed reviews, I think upon occasion with our format movie. Great. But we had some, really great highlights and really great concerts with that particular ensemble. And, uh, you know, we never, unfortunately, Skip never did come back. And that was like part of, uh, you know, when others are going up and other ones coming down. So we, that was kind of like our, 
you know, well, I wouldn't say it was our swan song because I liked Tony Granite Creek was pretty cool. But, yeah. uh, you know, but without Skip, it was it was never quite the same, but it was quite good. Yeah. But at the, but at the same time, I guess this is when Bob is starting to kind of crack up because he's the next to go. Yeah. Could you, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how, how that went down just to sort of take us out of this uh, era, this particular chapter? Well, I think that's what I was talking about when Bob, Bob would get kind of angry and, you know, he'd play, he'd play in the wrong key or, you know, that was like his main way of saying, I'm really pissed off and I'm here. You know, we'd be playing in A, <laughs> we'd be playing in C, you know. So it, it was just, you got more and more disenchanted with everything. And so I still want to, you, you can talk to Bob about that. I'm not going to go into a lot of about Bobby's life because, you know, he he ended up having a real difficult time and uh, and he came through it like a champion, right? You kind of look at how things work out and Bob is like just funny, still, you know, he's like doing really well. He's with Connie, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're having, you know, they're having, I, I've gone down and seen him a couple of times in San Jose. We just sat and laughed and talked and talked about some of the things we we're talking about. And uh, Bob cracks me up. He loves to laugh. You know, he's still, he doesn't, he doesn't know how to tell a lie. He's, I think if you, I think as Jordan Peterson said, tell the truth. And at least if you can't do that, don't lie. And that's Bob. He doesn't, he yeah. never lie. You know, so yeah. this was a, a difficult time. And there was a lot of crazy stuff that went on. And, you know, I'm not going to really talk about that. Right. But yeah, Moby Grape '69 was a good way to sort of go out. I mean, there, you know, there was a, there was others that followed, but yeah, that chapter ended with that, and it, and it was a strong a strong statement. Um, it's, it's a great I, album. I agree with you. It's my second favorite. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's Moby Grape '69 is because I really was fun to reflect on it. I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. I. I it, it enabled me to go back and listen to that album multiple times again and remember just how much I love it. And uh, I'm sure everybody listening is going to, you know, go and play it a million times after they hear all the insights that you've provided here. Um, so to wrap up, Cam, your book about Skip is coming out very, very soon, right? Mm, yeah, that's it's coming out in early, early April, I think April 4th. So it's... Um... Well came out in on April third, nineteen sixty eight, and this is uh, fifty six years and one day later. Okay, so you're hoping for the the review that will go wow. Exactly. Is that what we, that what we can expect? I, I'm looking forward to reading that. I can't wait. Yeah, it's it's it took me five almost five years actually. And um, Don was referring to that show when Omar came up to Canada and he stayed at my place for a couple nights and. Um, we were talking about his dad one night and then we got this idea about the book. So I made a uh, proposal for some uh, publishing houses and sent it out. And then I was at a conference in the summertime when I got a uh, positive word from Omnibus Press. I was in a cafe actually with my daughters and a friend and um, I was super excited. So it, it really clicked, kicked into gear in the summer of 2019 so it's almost five years in the making.
Ugly Things podcast was produced by James Archer and hosted by Mike Stacks. That's me. Ugly Things magazine is available at the very coolest record and bookstores and at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also be grateful if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, psychedelic music, and more. And you'll even get a shout-out at the end of the show, alongside all of the following people who help keep this podcast afloat by becoming Patreon subscribers. Glenn Saden, Glenn Gibbs, Charlie Koenigsack, Keith Patterson, Sophia Swartz, Dean Curtis, David Biazzotti, David Jones, Michael Barbara, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, J. Paul Riger, Derek Davidson, and Craig Easton. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for listening. Save me if I save It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.